All right, Matthew chapter 17. This was a tough chapter to break up. We're only going to go through half of it today. I wanted to fit it all in. Uh, there's just too much. And, and so uh, we're just going to look at the first half, the Mount of Transfiguration today. Now, in chapter 16, last week, just kind of keep it all in context. If you remember, Jesus warns the disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they, they don't really understand what he's talking about. But he explains uh, further that it's about the arrogance, it's about the self-righteousness, and it's about this thing that very subtly happens and can happen to all of us. So Jesus is warning the disciples, and if they needed to be warned, so do we, that we can start to believe that our opinion is also God's opinion, whether that's politics or traditions or whatever it might be. And it happens very slowly. But Jesus said it was like, it's like leaven or like yeast, that once a small little bit is put in, it just permeates everything. And we need to be careful and cautious. And, and kind of off of that, Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? And there's all kinds of crazy ideas, and, and some say Elijah, some say the prophet, some say this. And, and he brings them down to the simple question that everyone has to answer, who do you say that I am? And that's what we focused on mainly last week, is the importance of that single question and what our individual answer is. But then, then it becomes our job to take that question out, right, to everybody. Now, Peter, Peter uh, has some great moments. This is probably Peter's greatest moment without a hesitation. He goes, you're the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus is like, that's right, right? And upon this truth that you just spoke, that's what the whole church will be built on. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? So it's this great moment. And then right behind that, Jesus starts talking about his death. And, and Peter's like, no, no, I'm not going to let that happen. And Peter goes from being perfectly in line with God's will to now being in line with what Satan has in, in store. Because while Peter's saying, no, I'm not going to let that happen because he loves Jesus, the devil is saying, no, I'm not going to let that happen because he doesn't want the cross to take place, right? And... and so Jesus re rebukes him. Now, the end of chapter 16, Jesus says something that, that seems very odd. And he says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here that shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, as I mentioned last week, I think primarily Jesus is talking about John, that John will see the entire revelation. He's not just going to get a glimpse of it. He's going to see the finality of all things, the completion of all things. But I think it's also pointing to some degree to what's, what we're going to read about today, the Mount of Transfiguration, that they're going to see this really just a glimpse of the Lord's glory. And uh, it's Peter, James, and John. And, and again, I wouldn't consider this Jesus coming in his kingdom that he talked about in, in chapter 16, but it's just, just as much as they can handle at this point. So a lot of good stuff here. Um, let's pray. And we'll get into chapter 17. God, we thank you uh, just for the power of your word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way here today in each and every one of us. That you would speak to us and apply these things to our lives and that we would be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So chapter 17, starting in verse 1. It says, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. 
And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And then Peter answered and said to, said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard this, when, they, when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Now, this is uh, one of those, I think sometimes we hear it, we read over it, and we're like, wow, that would have been amazing. But we kind of just see it from the perspective of maybe the disciples, of like, that would be pretty incredible to see the Lord transformed before them. But there's a lot going on here. And so I kind of wanted to slow down and make sure we get some of the details, because I think it will change the way that we understand this event. This isn't just a cool thing Jesus did. There's a lot going on here. First of all, Jesus takes up Peter, James, and John. Um, there's some different ideas why Jesus focused on these three. Uh, one is that they were kind of leaders within the group of disciples. Like Each one of them was kind of in charge of another few guys. Um, and that's possible. You kind of see some things that, that point to that. Others think that this was just kind of the inner circle. These are the ones that Jesus kind of clicked with. I don't know about that. I think Jesus clicks with everybody. Um, I tend to think, and again, this is my own opinion, so don't take it too far. I, I see it more like when I was in school, the teacher would say, Jack, come sit next to me. <laughs> it wasn't because I was in the inner circle, right? <laughs> it's like, these three couldn't be left alone. And Jesus is like, okay, the rest of you are fine. You three come with me. You know, that you've got to keep these guys close. And there were other times that he did this. So when uh, the leader of the synagogue, his daughter had died and, and he comes and gets Jesus. Well, Jesus only took Peter, James, and John into the room with him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked all of the disciples to pray, but he asked Peter, James, and John to go further with him and pray with him specifically. So there, there was something, it really doesn't matter why Jesus chose these three, um, but he did choose them. And, and he, he knows that this event's going to take place, and this is something that they need to see. Um, and he takes them up, and there before them he's transfigured. Now, this word transfigure is important because it doesn't just mean uh, that he changed slightly. The word is where we get metamorphosis from. That it's, it's a change of everything. So not just an appearance change, Jesus got really bright and shiny. It's much more than that. And, and they knew that there was something that was vastly different about Jesus here. I think the best way that we could, we could maybe describe it, it's that his humanity was rolled back briefly. And who Jesus really is was allowed to show, show through, right? So... He was changed at an absolute natural, or at, a, at a, the nature of his state was changed, right? And, and, and it's huge, right? It says his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Um, and I just see it like that, that his humanity is just being rolled back 
as much as these guys can take. And that's, that's it, right? It isn't that Jesus just changed a little bit because he didn't want the extreme. It's just that we can't handle it. And then Scripture talks about that God can't be in the presence of sin. And I've heard that taught very wrongly that it's like God is almost afraid of like, ooh, yeah, get it away from me. I can't have it near me. It's that darkness can't exist with light. And so if God were to show up in his glory, the pure light of him would obliterate us and all of existence. It's just it's more than this realm can take, right? That the darkness and the sin of mankind would just cease to exist. So it's for their safety, it's for our safety that he doesn't show all of his glory. It's just as much as they can possibly take. And even with that, you get the idea that they're completely overwhelmed. It's like staring into the sun is the idea. His face shone like the sun. And again, that doesn't just mean bright. It means it was overwhelming to look at. His clothes were shining like pure white light. And there with him are Moses and Elijah. Um, Again, there's some interesting and important things about Moses and Elijah being here. And one of them that always stands out to me is that there's no introductions that take place. Right? It doesn't say the two guys showed up and then Jesus is like, uh, Peter, James, and John, this is Moses and Elijah. Boys, this is the boys. You know, there's nothing. They're not wearing name tags. That they look on these two and go, that's Moses and Elijah. There's no doubt in their mind. And, and it gives us just a little bit of a glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. That who we are on the inside, who we really are, is going to be obvious to all. That we will be known and we will know. That there's just going to be this understanding, right? We won't, there's no introductions in heaven. And, and so we get a little bit of that here that they didn't wonder. They didn't think, well, maybe this is Moses and Elijah. They knew absolutely that it was. And then Jesus will confirm that later on. Um, and why is it these two? Why, why did these two show up? Uh, why isn't it King David and Noah or some other people from the Old Testament? Why is it Moses and Elijah? Well, Uh, Again, this is not some random event. This didn't just happen unexpectedly. Jesus knew it was going to take place, and he planned by taking the guys up there with him. But in the Jewish mindset, all of Scripture was summarized as the law and the prophets. Moses represents the law, the lawgiver, and Elijah was the prophet. Now, there were other prophets as well, but he was considered the prophet. And so Moses and Elijah represent not only the all of Scripture, what we think of as the Old Testament, but the Old Covenant itself. The agreement between God and man is broken up by the law and the prophets. And so the two representatives of the Old Covenant are there with Jesus. And, and again, Moses and Elijah, very different ministries, different people. Uh, and God used them powerfully. Now, a lot of times, in fact, very often, when referring to the Scriptures, they would just say the Law and the Prophets. And Jesus, in Matthew 5, uh, said this, but it, it ties into exactly what's taking place here. So this is Matthew five seventeen. It says, Do not think that I came to destroy the Law and the Prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. This is part of that fulfillment. This meeting with Moses and Elijah is, is 
that things are being fulfilled perfectly as God has planned. Luke, when he describes the Mount of Transfiguration, he also gives us the insight of what they were discussing. And Luke tells us uh, in Luke chapter 9 that they spoke of Jesus' death that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So that's their topic. They're not just, hey, what's up? Been a long time. And, you know, how are things going? It wasn't all of that. This was meeting was taking place to discuss Jesus' death. And, and it, I think when we understand that, it changes the, this whole scene, right? This wasn't just something Jesus was doing to show these three disciples who he was. It's part of it. But it was something that was for Jesus, that was part of this plan, scheduled out the events that would lead to the cross and his resurrection. This was all part of it. Now, some of the other things that are going on, I mean, again, we see that this is the law and the prophets, and really that their fulfillment is going to be the cross. That Moses and Elijah, the work that, they, that God used them to do, that they were a part of, was just the beginning, was just part of it. And as important as the law was, the point of the law was to show us our need for a Savior. You know, so often people think, well, I'm going to be just be a good person, and I'm just going to follow the Ten Commandments. Well, it doesn't work. Because while you can keep some of them, you can't keep all of them. And to break one of them categorizes you as a lawbreaker or a sinner. And so that's the purpose of the law, not to make us perfect, to show us we're not perfect, to show us we desperately need to be saved. And so now Moses, the guy that received that law, is now standing there with Jesus, the one who will fulfill all that the law requires. And again, I always try and kind of like imagine what it was like at these different events. Remember the story of Moses? And again, this is a total rabbit trail, but we're going to go down it anyway. Moses leads the people of Israel through the desert, 40 years, gets to the border of the promised land, and he loses his temper. Remember, the Lord tells him, go out. Speak to the rock, and I'll bring forth water for the people. And he loses his temper, and he strikes the rock, and he, he starts yelling at the people. Shall I bring forth water for you rebels? That is not the Lord's message. And as a, as a result, the Lord tells him, you're not going to enter the promised land. <laughs> to me, that breaks my heart every time I think about it. All that Moses did and was, went through and everything else, he's like, I'm not going in? But here we see that he is in the promised land. It's like he just had to wait a little bit longer. <laughs> and now, not only is he in the promised land, he's in the promised land speaking to God Almighty about fulfilling the plan that he got to be a little part of. I don't think Moses regrets a thing, other than maybe losing his temper. But he's there, and he's in the promised land, and, and all of these things are going to be fulfilled at the cross. And I really think that that's part of what's going on. Again, conjecture on my part. Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah, to some degree, I think there's this, look, the work that God used you guys to do, I'm here to complete. That the covenant that you guys were a part of is now going to reach its ultimate fulfillment in a new covenant that I will bring. Right? Now, Peter, 
I love Peter. I just relate with Peter so much. I think Peter was a nervous talker. You know those guys that are people that <laughs> they get uncomfortable or maybe there's too much silence and they just start babbling, right? Peter is there. Jesus transformed before his eyes. Moses and Elijah are right there. Elijah are right there. And he just starts <laughs> rambling. In fact, I think it's Mark that tells us because he didn't know what to say, Peter said, it's good for us to be here. He's just like, well, I'm just going to start talking because I'm really uncomfortable and, and maybe I'll end up getting somewhere. But in all of his rambling that he does, he also kind of reveals some things about his own thinking and his own heart about this. When he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Well, that's obvious. And we could go, well, maybe Peter just wants to be there and stay there, right? And that's why he's saying, well, let's build three tabernacles. But the idea of building three tabernacles, there's actually a lot more to it. Um, now, tabernacles could mean like a temple, or it could mean something as simple as a, as a tent. So, it's, you know, I, I've heard people say, well, he, he wants to build three altars, three te temples. I don't know if that's what Peter was saying. I think Peter was just saying, we want to be here. This is a good place. The problem with what he's saying is that he's putting Jesus on an equal level with Moses and Elijah. That there's an equality. And maybe from Peter's perspective, it was like, wow, Jesus, you've made it. Look, Moses and Elijah have come back from the dead to like, be here with you. This is a good sign, right? We're, we're doing well in, our, in, in how we're being accepted. But, but if that was the case, he was absolutely wrong. Because it wasn't that Jesus had somehow risen to a, a level of acceptance or popularity or power. They were there, Moses and Elijah were there in worship. And so anything that Peter is doing that somehow puts the three of them e equally, he's missing it completely, right? Uh, Jesus was certainly not on an equal level with them. And then this bright cloud comes. This is the Shekinah glory of God. This was the glory that would hover above the... the uh, Ark of the Covenant in the temple. And now it's right there. So you've got God the Father, God the Son, Moses, Elijah. I mean, this is quite a scene that's all going on here. And then God speaks from the cloud and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Now, I can't help but think the timing of this as Peter is rambling and oh, it's good for us to be here. And uh, blah, 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 blah. and like the God is just like Peter, shh, stop talking for a second. I, I need you to listen. This is my son. He's doing exactly what I want him to do, and I want you to hear him. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, I think sometimes we have that same approach in our prayer life. I know I do, and and. Even as we, we go, okay, well, we don't just want to seek the Lord for stuff or, be, or my needs. You know, I want to be thankful. But sometimes I can, like, rush into prayer, and I'm just like Peter. I'm just rambling. I'm like, oh, it's good for me to be here, and I need this, and how about that? And, hey, you're great, and I think you're awesome. But we need to, at some point, maybe not necessarily the beginning, but at some point in our prayer life, we just need to be still and listen. Just, Lord, you know what I need to hear. I want to tune my ear and I just want to listen. No agenda, no thought, not trying to make you do or say or act in any way. I just, I just 
want to hear you. Now also there's some clear instruction of what the, the Father is saying. Again, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, they're standing right there. And so when he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. He's saying the time of the law and the prophets are over. They're fulfilled, or they're about to be fulfilled. And so no longer are we to check the law and the prophets to see if Jesus is enough. We are to hear him. And understand that it is Jesus who did the work through the law and the prophets. He's the one that gave the law. He's the one that empowered the prophets. They were all pointing to his arrival. Now that he's arrived, our whole job is to hear him. And it's a very different way of approaching Scripture. And hopefully we're already doing this. That we're viewing all of Scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ. I was just talking with someone the other day, and they were, they were talking about the book of Leviticus. And they're like, man, it is so boring. <laughs> and it's pretty, it can be very dry. But if you read the book, the book of Leviticus like a mystery novel, because so much of it is pointing at Jesus, the way the temple is built, the way the laws are given, the way the cleansing takes place. All of these things are all put together, and they all point to Jesus himself. And it becomes very exciting to go, wait, why is this? And why is this made of brass, but that's made of gold? And why is there this scarlet thread that's woven into all of these different tapestries? You know, because they're all pointing to the Lord, right? And it, and it changes the way we understand and view Scripture when we know that it's speaking and pointing to him. Now, for the disciples, again, it is, it's like this moment of instruction to go, this is your job, to hear him, to listen to him. And it's not the still, small voice that God speaks in. It's intense, so much so that they fall on their faces and they are greatly afraid. And can't really blame them. <laughs> I mean, again, trying to picture this, I find that my heart starts to race a little bit. If, you know, I picture the scene and I always picture it getting very dark. You know, and then there's this glow of the, the Shekinah glory of God and Moses and Elijah, and it's like this surreal scene of Jesus changing or allowing his glory to shine through. I'm amazed that they made it this far. And so when God speaks, it just drops them to the ground, and they are greatly afraid. Now, verse 7 says, But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one, until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first. And will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but they did to him whatever they wished. And likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. 
Now, again, this intense scene, they fall on their faces. And I love the fact that Jesus doesn't just speak to them, doesn't just shout, boys, stand up, you're fine. You know, <laughs> it's nothing like that. He touches them. It's very personal. He goes over, he puts his hands on them and says, hey, don't be afraid. You know, again, I, I just think it's such a neat little insight of what Jesus' character is like. And when they look up, it's just Jesus. And again, I, I think there's some great symbol, symbolism taking place there that the law, the prophets, God the Father, all this, this super overwhelming state, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is, is the only one there, the only one they need, the only one to look to. Everything else has its place, it's important, but what they need is Jesus. I also think the timing of all this is important for the disciples themselves. Because remember, Jesus has been kind of made a change in his ministry where before he would kind of allude to the cross, he'd allude to his death, but now he's being very clear with the disciples. And he's telling them, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be murdered, and I will rise again. And they don't understand it. Every time they hear it, they're like, ah, I don't get that. And, and they're just kind of overwhelmed with sadness because they, they understand, or they're starting to understand, this isn't metaphorical. He's talking about really dying. And that's very contrary to what they still believed was going to take place with the Messiah, that Jesus was going to be the Messiah to rule and reign the whole world. And... Uh, and these guys have gotten a glimpse of his power and his glory. But again, part of what's taking place here is the events that are about to happen. Jesus being arrested. Jesus being crucified. These three are going to have the perspective of going, God the Father spoke to us and said that Jesus, his son, was doing exactly what he was supposed to. He was well pleased with everything Jesus was doing. So this isn't out of the Lord's will, but they just probably still couldn't reconcile it. But above everyone, everything, the instruction remains the same, that they are to hear Jesus, listen to him, even when nothing seems to make sense. And so coming down the mountain, Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone about this. Now, I think we already know there's like this competition between the, the disciples, and, and I can only imagine that they're like, man, wait till everyone else hears what they missed out on, right? And Jesus is like, don't tell anybody. <sighs> it would just be hard not to say this anyway. You, you are not going to believe what we saw. And, and Jesus, in, in, including the disciples, don't tell anyone about this until after I've risen from the dead. Now, his disciples in verse 10 ask him this question. This seems very random, but again, it points to what the disciples are still thinking about. In verse 10 it says, And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say Elijah must come first? The teaching was, that they're referring to, is that Elijah the prophet was going to appear, uh, and that then the Messiah would end up ruling the entire world. And, and they get that from Malachi chapter 4. Verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So that's what they're referring to. And they kind of expanded that in some weird directions. Even ones that, that tried to keep it in a scriptural context still didn't fully understand. It was mainly seen that Elijah's going to show up 
And then the Messiah will judge the Gentile world. And Israel will end up ruling the world with the Messiah as their king. That's how it was viewed. And that's why the, why the disciples ask this now. They're like, okay, are we still going to do that? Like, are you, are you going to establish an earthly kingdom? Because we just saw Elijah like five minutes ago on the mountain. Is that the turning point? Is now the ministry going to change and you are going to judge the Gentiles, the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and then we're going to rule? That's why they're asking this. Well, Jesus answers in, in an interesting way. Really, he gives them uh, kind of two answers, and it can be a little bit confusing. So in verse 11, he says, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. So that's a future tense. He is coming. But the second time, or the second way he answers is in a past tense in verse 12 when he says, But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did whatever they wished. And likewise, the Son of Man also is about to suffer at their hands. So the, the, what makes that confusing is that Malachi 4 is a, is a prophecy that refers to his first coming at Bethlehem when he was born and his ministry on the earth, but it also refers to his second coming at the end of the tribulation. And so there is a present or a, a past of, of John the Baptist, which the disciples understand that's what he's talking about, but there is the future tense of the two prophets in Revelation, that one of them will be very much like Elijah. Now, with John and with the prophet uh, in Revelation, this isn't like a reincarnation of Elijah. Some people have spun it like that. It's not referring to that. It's the same type of ministry, the same type of anointing, the same type of attitude, I think. And, and again, Moses and Elijah had two very different ways they did ministry. Two different, very different personalities. Moses was the, the intercessor. And there were times where he would beg God just for the people. No, have mercy on those people. Have mercy on Israel. You know, it, and even to the point of saying, destroy me and save them. Elijah was the opposite. Elijah's like, God, you see those people over there? Kill them. <laughs> and there's like this extreme between the two ways that God used those characters, well, in the same way, John the Baptist had that same very straightforward, no messing around when it came to the things of God. And so will one, at least one of the guys that's uh, the prophets there in Revelation. Revelation chapter 11 is where they're talked about. And so, anyhow, again, little rabbit trail, but hopefully that wasn't too confusing. So Moses and Elijah have fulfilled their part. And Jesus makes it clear to the disciples that the plan is still unchanged. Again, this isn't a change where the disciples were, were kind of hoping for it. Okay, we've seen Elijah. Is everything going to be different now? Maybe we're avoiding this whole thing. You keep talking about your death in Jerusalem. And Jesus goes, no. Nope. They killed John the Baptist. I'm going to go there and suffer at their hands just like he did. And so the plan doesn't change. And, and again, there's this heaviness to these things because it, there's so much that is going to take place that they just simply don't understand until later. But in the midst of it, and again, I can't imagine what they went through putting all of their hope over three years of following Jesus and, and giving up so much of their life and then to have him die on the cross. It would seem like 
everything was wrong. They were wrong about everything. All their hope was lost, all of this. And so these events are, are still ahead for them, and they're not going to understand it until later. And Jesus makes that pretty clear every time, that it's after he's risen from the dead. It'll make sense. Now for us, I think there's some great similarities here because there's a lot of things that are going to happen that we just simply don't understand. There's a lot of things in life that we're just like, this doesn't seem like the character of God. This doesn't seem like the things that I thought he had planned. I've been putting all my hopes into this and my hopes into these people or, or whatever it might be, this ministry or this, this step of faith that I was taking, and it completely seems to crumble in front of us. And it's not going to make sense. Maybe not in the moment, maybe not in this life. And that's a hard thing for us to reconcile because we want answers, right? It's like if God sh showed up and said, well, okay, the reason this all fell apart or the reason this tragedy was in your life is because what you don't know is, and we go, oh, okay, that makes sense. Most of the time, we're not going to get that. And it won't make sense until our resurrection, until we're in heaven. And then we'll go, okay, that, that was worth it. That does make sense. While we're here, the instruction to this, the disciples is still the instruction to us. Because there's so many things, whether that's tragedy or difficulty or trial, that can take our attention. But there's also plenty of things that we give our attention to. Teachers and instructors and, and people that tell us how to live. And, and it can be overwhelming. And I believe one of the things that we know in our heads, but we have to be careful of not doing in our hearts, is where we give an equal place to all of those things with Jesus, right? We're, get, we're getting instruction from everyone. And this person says to don't eat carbs and exercise more. And this is, uh, these people are saying to take care of your money and, and take care of your family and take care of your marriage. Oh, and Jesus says forgive. And we kind of put them all on this even shelf. And we, we've got to make sure that all of that other stuff is way down below, a far distant second and first we are hearing Jesus above everything else, even when it doesn't make sense, especially when it doesn't make sense, that we would hear him. And, and when we let him just clear away all the distraction and all the white noise and all the debris, that when we look up, he's all we see, right? Not that all those things don't have a place. Not that there isn't good instruction out there. But, man, it's got, just got to be a far, far distant second to Jesus. And even with all the things we have, man, we've got the Word of God. We've got the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We have so much more than even the disciples did at that time. Yet we still have to be careful. Not letting anything else crowd in or become equal to. Or take that place of the Lord in our lives. Our whole instruction is simply that we hear Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.